Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. It's hard to remember a time when Osher Ginsberg wasn't on TV. He's just always been there, beaming with a big smile. In fact, last week here in Australia, the latest season of The Bachelor hit our TV screens and Osher, as the host, will be the one to carry us through this journey towards love. Osher is one of Australia's most loved celebrities and given that he's been in the media industry for over 20 years, both here in Australia and overseas, I feel like I've grown up with him. And when you see someone on TV or hear them on the radio, we can make assumptions about their lives, but their reality may be very, very different. Osher has written a book called Back After the Break, where he shares his life experiences and some of these are far from the glitz and glamour that we associate with the entertainment industry. Osher says that his brain works differently and he's had to learn how to make it work for him. Struggling with anxiety, panic attacks and weight issues since he was young, he has turned to alcohol and drugs to numb his experiences. In this conversation, Osher shares four key things that he focuses on in order to keep his life on track and his brain functioning. This is a revealing, raw, funny and heartfelt conversation with Osher Ginsberg. But welcome to the studio. It's How great. epic is this studio? It's amazing to be here, Ali. I'm thrilled that I can be on your show oh, and that you've brought awesome me to this you. extraordinary space. Do your listeners know where you record? No, they don't. So just to get, bear in mind, uh, we are recording in the oldest recording studio in Sydney. This is Studio 301. It was in this, in this very room that some of the biggest... Australian acts ever of all time. I don't know how many US number ones have been recorded in the room we're sitting in. It's amazing to be in this space. Yeah, there's think something about, about the history, the people, yeah. the, the possibility yeah, of just walking through the door. Some right? people get, you know, when the, the first time you get it, I went to the, the Sydney Swans game the other night. You get it when you walk out for the first time at a stadium and you go, oh, and you see that expanse, whether it be the MCG or the Gabber, and you go, oh, it was here that, you know, Viv Richards played this against Dennis Lilly. I don't know if they ever face each other. Um, you know, you get that moment of, of importance, like this is the space where this happened or you travel around the world and you go and stand um, at a, you know, you stand at the cathedral where Martin Luther nailed his, you know, protestations to the cover of the, to the cover, to the front door of the cathedral. And you go, oh, wow, there's such an important space. Well, here we are in this really important space uh, in this room, within these walls, all that creativity and, and expression and artistic Thing and it's, it's fascinating. And to it's be just here. another way of telling stories. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's great it's to be music, here. It's, 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 it's really, art. it's really good to be in this in this space. It's really, really no, I was good. Excited it's good to, to see um, you on this. Yeah, it's a chilly Sydney that. morning. It's fresh. Um, yeah, and I'm a cold man. <laughs> it's good to be here. <laughs> yeah, look, it's so um, such a delight to be sitting down with you. And I am this book back after the break. Yes. Damn, you can write. Thank you very much it for is saying so. Amazing. Thank you. And I'm not just saying that because I've got you on. Oh, I appreciate like, that. Um, yeah. I appreciate that. And thanks. You're the, you're the very first person I ever signed a book for in my life. Yeah. So there it is. I did it today it's, and for you. It's uh, amazing. Because I've only got one copy at home and that was the that's the other copy that I've seen and yeah. I've written on it already. It's exciting. Um, thank you. I, I had a, a lot of great help, obviously. You know, I, um, I'd learned... I'd taken a couple of storytelling classes when I lived in Los Angeles um, and that because I'm always someone who believes that you're never as good as you can be at your job. There's always something that you can learn to be better at and plus that keeps it interesting, honestly. And um, so I'd taken a couple of storytelling classes in Los Angeles and I'd performed a few – I was kind of getting into the format of storytelling and then there was a show – uh, here in Sydney called um, Story Club, which is run by Zoe Norton Lodge and Ben Jenkins. Um, they're a part of the Chaser family and they have a theatre here called, the Chaser have a theatre here called Giant Dwarf and it was at that place that I started telling stories on stage and one of the stories I told was about the day I lost my mind. It was about the day that I fell into psychosis and, and um, everything got super, super terrifying. Um, and it was through that story, telling that story, that this book came about. And so because I had experience of writing the story and, and, and writing other stories for Story Club, it was just basically how, how many stories in a row can you write? And then 
it ended up, they wanted 90,000 words. I gave them 158. <laughs> the things I found you do. A few more stories. Well, Ali, the things you do when you when you're uh, on the set of Bachelor of Paradise, waiting for your moment to run in. Um, Plenty and, of time to write words. Well, yeah, and then, but I had extraordinarily talented editors who then, you know, took what I'd written and gone, okay, so I see what you've done here. Maybe can you try and get us from here to there faster or, or you can, do we need this part? Can you pull that out? What if this part got, can we have more of this? I've kind of written this three times over two pages. Can we just do it once? And then you kind of, all oh, right, I see what you're doing. I get it, I get it, I get it. And, you know, approaching that, you know, at the same time, knowing these are the things that I, I have to be in here. We can't cut this out. This stuff is too important. But I, I get why we can make it tighter. I get how we can make it flow better and hopefully make a reading experience that is uh, descriptive and immersive and doesn't um, gloss over too much. Because I, I, we're dealing about, there's some pretty heavy subject matter in here, but Ali, it's no more heavy than anything anyone has experienced. I'm not a special snowflake. I'm not uncommon. A lot of people go through what I've gone through and it's just, it's not talked about so much. And I know 100% that my life changed for the better when I heard other people put their hand up and say, this is what I'm going through and this is how I look at the world and this is the problems I was having and this is how I was dealing with it and... It, this is why it wasn't working and this is what I've tried to make it better. And I hear all the part up and go, like, that's everything that's happened to me. But I haven't figured anything else out. What's this person got? Yeah. And whether that be someone in a fellowship meeting or a doctor or someone, it's only through hearing another person having a similar experience that I go, oh, good, it's not just me. Thank goodness there's a way out of this. I'm not the only one. True. There's so so much power in telling those stories. And for me, that was the impetus of even starting the podcast. I'm yeah, sure absolutely. A similar kind of um, set that, you know, we think someone else has got their shit together and then you realise, actually, no, that's not the case. Um and that's a big part of, you know, in that book and in your book, and we'll definitely dive into that. The other thing I was struck by, and I think this is true for everyone, is that there was numerous, and whether it's just the process of putting this into a memoir for you, of these sliding door moments that if this had happened, my life would have gone down this yeah. path. And again, that's true for every single one of us. Yeah. It's not just the fame and the platform that your story's been on. I think there was one point where you got a call up from Daniel Jones part of Savage Garden. Kind yeah. Of I could and, have been in that. And, we're, in and that. we're sitting in a studio yeah. where there's Savage Garden platinum records yeah. on every wall. Sliding door moment. Yeah. You were in a band when Sony were kind of sniffing around looking yeah. for a band in that grunge era and yeah. they signed up Silverchair. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like I was really struck by that. How did you find that process, I guess, of almost diving back into looking over that career? Well, there was, yeah, there's, there's, there's two things that really struck out. I was a look back because I wanted to... We're, we're, we're a product of our experiences and our actions, all right? That's who we are. We're a product of our choices, our experiences, our actions. That's who we sit as we're listening to this podcast. That's exactly who you are. And, you know, along the way and looking back, it's like I didn't just, you know, happen to, you know, fall into... I didn't just wake up one day and decide to have a problem with alcohol. I didn't just wake up one day and decide to have, you know you know, uh, ruminating anxiety in my brain or, you know, having had episodes of paranoid delusion. All that stuff is cumulative and it's all, you know, core, everything leads to it, right? And so it's important, it was important to me to discuss, you know, here's all the things that led to these, these moments in my life. And so there's two things that were really, really struck out to me is that along the way, yes, indeed, there were these moments of like, ah, oh, that's where the fork in the road was, right there. That's, that's important. And it's important because you never know where that fork in the road is. And as I look back and as I wrote about it, I guess, you know, since then, I've just tried to be as present as possible to every interaction with another person could be that serendipitous moment, all right? So make that moment count. It's something I've always tried to do, tried to be very present to it. And that's paid off as I write in the book, that, yeah. that pays off. Um, particularly when I got the job on CBS in the States. Um, I got that job because I'd left a good impression on someone in a meeting four years beforehand, someone I hadn't spoken to since. But yeah. she saw my name on a piece of paper and go, yeah, him, pick him. Yeah. Um, so those moments are, are, are really important to, 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 to bear. Uh, they, they bear highlighting because it's just trying to show the importance of... Um, 
you never know what the person that you're interacting with will do in your life. You never know what they will say four years from now when your name comes up that will give you an opportunity that can catapult you ahead. So whenever you interact with anyone, <laughs> try and make it count. And not just from a career point of view, it's just because it's a nice thing to do. Yeah. And it, it gives, it serves them, it serves you, it serves all of us. And I think the other thing that when I look back on all those moments was how often I actually, without realising it, had control over my career path and over my life and about those choices that I that I made. Some of those choices ended me up in some, you know, pretty icky spots. Um, but some of those choices led me to, uh, you know, incredible career highs. And a lot of that comes from choosing to, uh, you know, I could choose to not ask for this or I could choose to ask for this. I'm going to ask for this. The amount of times in my career that I cold called, the amount of times in my career that I just wrote a letter or just set, pitched to someone and said, you know what, you should hire me. That's what you should do because you need someone that can do this and I can do this. Call me if you ever need it. And then a week later, the phone rings. Oh, you were right. <laughs> Let's what go. Do, what do you think stops people from doing that? Look, I, I don't know, but maybe it's a sense of worthiness. I don't know. Um, but I would just try to impress upon people that, you know, you, there are ways to ask for advantages in your I can guarantee you, you look at successful people, every one of those successful people has has asked for the things that have led them to get what they want. People didn't knock down the door and go, here's, here's fame and fortune, here it is. Yeah. No, they went, oh, here's, here's a way that I can help you, let me help you. Here's a way that I can do this thing, maybe in a way that'll be more advantageous to the person you've got doing it right now. Or maybe there's a gap in your business that needs someone that can do this, I reckon that's me. And just letting people know what you offer is also so important. Um, and just understanding that if you just keep asking, the universe does listen. And I'm not saying that in a woo-woo, crystals around my throat, kind of, you know, dangling from my ears kind of way. It's just it's just the way it's always worked for me and the way I've seen it work in people that I, I know and highly successful people in my industry uh, and others. It's always been, if you, as long as you, you know, humbly ask and just keep pointing in the direction that you want to go, you'd be surprised how often things turn out your way. And what opportunities you're actually exactly. seeing and going, oh, exactly. actually, the six degrees of separation is actually True. only two. True. <laughs> I can have, have that conversation And you're worth asking. Here. And you know what? If they say no, guess where you are? Exactly where you'd be if you didn't <laughs> ask. So just fucking ask. Except now you've got the muscle of asking. Go and do, <laughs> yeah. go and but do it comes with practice. More. It comes yeah. with small practices. You yeah. just you can ask. You know, you practice practice at the coffee shop. Practice when you're you know dealing with strangers. Just practice asking. Just practice on tiny little things, and then just they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Practice with your family. Practice just getting that asking. Ask because you're worth it. You're worth it. Obviously, you know. It's from a humble standpoint. It's not from an, you know, I deserve everything, give me everything kind of way. It's, uh, you know, let's maybe I can do this a little better for you. And, you know, that's where it comes from. And see where that comes from. One of the other things I loved, you really paid homage to your parents' story. Mm. And they've got a fascinating story yeah. as well from Lithuanian mum, Czechoslovakian father, and uh, post-war mm. kind of experiences around leaving Europe at that time. How much did their life really shape who you are and your oh, personality. I think, well, I think it's really, it's really interesting and I, and I write about it in the book. It wasn't until I started spending a lot of time in Israel that I, I started to learn about intergenerational trauma uh, and then children of Holocaust survivors, even grandchildren of Holocaust survivors who'd never set foot, you know, weren't born until the 80s but still exhibiting symptoms of, um, you know, trauma. Um I'm not saying that that's what happened, you know, to me, but it's there's something about both my parents were refugees at one point in their life. Um, my you know, my father had to flee the Russians when they cracked down on the Prague Spring in 1968, and then 20 years before, 24 years before, my mum had to flee Lithuania when the Russians were invading um, Lithuania, which at the time was occupied by the Nazis. So let's just imagine you're in a country occupied by the Nazis and then the Russians are coming and you go, oh, those guys are really bad. Like, just imagine yes, how yeah, bad yeah. she must have been, right? <laughs> so anyway, whatever it was that helped those two people survive and thrive, 
whatever behavioral traits or um, how shall I put this alertness to peril got them to out out of those situations alive and well, I guess you know carried them through their lives, and so it's just you know. I must have picked up some of that along the way, I'm guessing. Um, you know, some of it I got born with. I got born with a brain that, you know, prone to anxiety and ruminating anxiety. But some of the other stuff is definitely, you know, can't be that. And, I, and I, it was really important for me to write about this, all right, because in our country of Australia, um, I'm sure people listen to this overseas, but in our country of Australia, there are a lot of people that come to live here in this beautiful, peaceful, prosperous, um, bountiful with boundless planes to share country who have come from very traumatic backgrounds. And, and recently, very, very recently, you know, incredible war trauma. And it's, I, I wanted to write about my experience because I think it's, it's important to understand that if someone is, is a new immigrant to this country and they've fled like really, really horrible stuff that was happening in their home country so bad they can't go back, that that's that does stick with you and it sticks with your kids and just to be aware around that and you know such and such a person from such and such a country is a bit strange sometimes well when you think that you know 10 years ago his parents were hiding in a ditch lying over over their infant child hoping to save them from the rebels and now they're here you know working a minimum wage job in a high vis shirt trying to make ends meet mm. Cut him some slack, man. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the kids not... acting out at school. Trying to imagine what dad's trying, or mum's trying to deal with, you know, when in the world of PTSD and stuff like that. Let's just have cut it. Let's let's try to have a bit of compassion around here. That's that's why it was important for me to write about it. And that some of those experiences are personal. And yeah. and let's actually wrap our arms around yeah, yeah, the yeah. people and the Absolutely. support along the way. And I'm so grateful that these people have have, have come to to build. Immigrants have always made our country great. And and that's why the other thing that I'm an immigrant. No, that's why it was important for me to write about. I was like, yeah, we are among you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> They're going, not you, really? <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, you. But I'm white, so no one mine. That's the thing. So, and you talk about, um, you talk a lot about your um, youth and growing up and yeah. particularly your first kind of experience with anxiety mm. at quite a young age. Yeah. Can you talk us a little bit through what you remember of that? Uh, there was two. There was two really, really profound things that I because I was trying to think back when I wrote the book. How long ago did this start? And there was two episodes. One when I was three or four. I must have been in kindy, and I, I wound a tire swing. This is back in the day when playgrounds were full of dangerous stuff. That could, you know, and if, the, if you got hurt, it was like, ah, you shouldn't have been on it that high. There's <laughs> uh, no padded floors back then. And um, I wound this tyre swing. It was like a tyre that was suspended on, all, on four equal points around the circumference of the tyre. And I wound it up and I noticed that it spun as it wound down. I was like, oh, that'd be fun to get on that. So I wound it right up and then crawled onto it and it started spinning. And as it was spinning, my all the blood rushed to my head and I realised I couldn't get off and it was really scary and terrifying. And I was, I got so afraid and I went and I started to panic but then I realised I had this fear and this fear was now really frightening and I started getting afraid of feeling afraid and every time I thought about what happened on the swing, I'd feel the panic again and I was utterly inconsolable and so much so that the people at the kindy had to call my mum in from work and, and take me home. And then a couple of years later, the same thing happened again and I got really triggered by something I saw on telly, uh, something really frightening I saw on television and I just flew into this this complete horrible terrifying panic and my hands were shaking and I couldn't breathe properly and then every time I thought about why is why was I shaking again bang it would come back again and then I started this idea that the world wasn't safe started showing up when I was really young and that even though I was you know in a house in shelter you know you know there was food in the fridge there was family around me inside my body was the most horrifyingly terrifying feeling that existed and I walked around with that and it was there at any time and all I had to do was try and remember, like, why did I feel that way again? Bang! And it hit me again and my whole body, like, physically, I hope people understand that it's not just a mental symptom that you don't have. Like, you actually feel physical symptoms. You, you actually can't... It, at times in my life, I've felt as if uh, someone is pushing on my chest. At times in my life, I've felt as if someone is actually holding me around my throat. Even though there's nobody there, I actually feel the pressure on my skin. Like, is that, that Which the, you can't then get away the, from the, even the, someone was there. Uh, yeah, and, but, that, away, that, but that's yeah. the thing. You can be and have someone go, it's cool, Ali, you're safe, you're safe. He's like, no, you don't understand. It's 
inside me. This thing, this horrible feeling is inside me. This fear is inside me and I can't escape it because it's in my body. Um, and that started happening when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was really, it was really full on. It was really full on. Um, I figured out at the time, I figured out a great way to make that f- horrible feeling in my tummy go away is to put food in it, um, as many people have. Uh, but that, uh, that didn't work out too well. Uh, and, um, but yeah, so it, it can start when you're really, really young, and for me, it did, yeah. And that's where a lot of those strategies of numbing or mm. what what's another yeah. way to feel physically different, yeah. and it might start with food, and, and yeah. a lot of then your story, as you said, it's not just a one-off catalyst. Yeah, get old enough to be able to go to the pub and have a drink, and then that can lead to more. Well, and more yeah, and well, it's a, alcohol is a very widely available uh, and completely acceptable uh, form of treatment for all kinds of, <laughs> of mental illnesses. People have no problem if you sedate the pain away. It's very socially acceptable to do so. And unfortunately, uh, for some people like me, the amount you need to drink before you feel actually all right again eventually becomes unsustainable. Well, that certainly wasn't my case. Yeah. So, I mean, you've been a media personality for over 20 years yeah. now. So and a lot of the start of your career was in radio um, and and then and that and on TV as well. What was the pull towards being on stage? Uh, the pull towards being on stage was, well, for me, anxiety uh, always was a lack of control and it was a, a fear of the future. Um, the depression I found, depression is... a, a related to the past, anxiety is related to the future. Um, and the the fear of uh, the lack of control was a thing that really killed, was really, really got me. And I found that the time when I did feel in control was when I stood on stage and I was, everyone was quiet and it was just me speaking. And that was the moment that all the fear of the fear stopped you know, all this idea that at any moment this horrible pain in my body could show up at any point would go away because I knew exactly what was going to happen and I knew exactly what was going to happen next. And so I started chasing that being on stage. I played in every band I could. I wanted to be on stage. I, it just felt right. And it felt it so peaceful. It sounds so counter, counterintuitive because for so many people... That's so many people, it's the most fear. terrifying thing. <laughs> For me, it's absolute serenity, absolute yeah. serenity. Like to be on stage in those moments, in those moments of flow, it just, oh, it's everything shut up, everything in my, all that, the kind of the screaming wedge-tailed eagle that constantly circled above my head waiting for a moment to dive. Um, you know, and just inflict this this physical and mental pain on me just vanished and uh, I would just be in the moment and it was amazingly peaceful. And and I found that would happen as well once I started getting on radio, once I would open the mic, ah, there it was again. It was only for, you know, 10 or 20, 30 seconds sometimes. But, you know, then again, Mick Fanning wins world, Steph Gilmore wins world surfing titles. She, she will win a 10-point wave, can be 18 seconds long, all right? But that's that 18 seconds of her life will define her, her career and win her a sixth world title, all right? So it's, they don't have to be long moments, but those moments are enough, man. Those are, ah, oh, it's quite. And, and then, then you get to remember those moments again. And then is it the chase of the Yeah, and then one? a chase and chase and chase. And then yeah. like to the point where um, I did a job on uh, CBS television in the States. I hosted live network primetime, coast to coast TV, 10 million, pitch, 10 million people watching live. And in those moments staring down the barrel of the camera, it was the most peaceful, calm, most beautifully serene. Like picture you, pick, like the... Someone, some travel blogger on Instagram in a lotus position in a retreat at the, you know, somewhere on a mountain in Thailand. That's what I felt like staring down the barrel of the camera, um, talking to millions of people, just utter, utter peace. It's That's beautiful. extraordinary because I was going to ask you about that story because leading up to that, you'd been over in LA for mm. a number of years trying to crack into the scene yeah. over there. And you were, I understand, tell me if I'm wrong, the first Australian to host a live network coverage yes. in the US. Yes. Um, and you were very aware of how big this deal Massive was. Deal. Massive deal. Uh, and how many people would be watching yeah, you. Yeah. And you actually tell this story in the book. Um, can you even walk through what you did five, ten minutes before you went on stage? Oh, okay. So by this, by the point that I got the job in CBS, um, I had been, uh, I'd been sober for about, I think I got the job, I was only seven months sober, seven or eight months sober. 
Um, by the time we went live, I was coming up on a year. Um, but back when we were still doing Australian Idol, which was a singing show that ran for seven years here, it was a singing competition show, um, I started to meditate before I, I went on stage and I started to visualise when I, what would happen when I went on stage and I found all those things very, very, very powerful and all great strategies. People would often ask me when I worked on Channel V, they say, don't you ever get nervous? And I figured out, no, I only get nervous if I don't prepare and I always prepare. In fact, I always over-prepare. And by the time I'm standing on live television, I've rewritten the script maybe three times. I've rehearsed it with a full dress rehearsal once. We've rehearsed it with a camera rehearsal once. I've read through the whole thing by myself. Um, and there's been a script meeting early in the day. So by the time I'm reading it on camera, it's maybe the 10th or 11th time that I'm saying the words out loud. Um, that's just the saying the words out loud part. The actual walking out, doing it, standing, getting, hitting your mark, being in the right spot. So they can delicate dance between you and the cameras to make sure you're in the right place at the right time, standing in the light. There's all kinds of things you, you need to do. Um, but I would visualize all of that beforehand. I would, you know, in the five to 10 minutes before the show, like I'm, I've got my, I'm all wired up. I've got the microphones on me. I've got my earpiece in. I'm, I'm standing side of stage. Um, I'm just doing some really simple breathing exercises. Uh, I can't remember the name of the exercise, but you just basically you stand there and you uh, you take a big breath in, hold it, push down on it, and then tighten your butt muscles. Hold in like you're trying to hold in a pee. Clench your abs. Uh, I make a fist with the hand that's not holding the microphone, and then I let it all out, and I let it sit in that exhalation for about twenty to twenty seconds. And then I do that one more time, and then I do that two more times, and then that's a really that's a really great because then that gives you a baseline of where to, to where to start from to reset. Um, but I would have been meditating in my green room probably. So right after makeup, I would take five or ten minutes of meditation, and just that's just breathing, you know, just honestly just breathing, and then in my head just visualizing. Okay, Harvey, my floor manager counts me down. I take in rehearsal. I took twenty two steps. It's probably about you know that many steps to the mark. I know exactly where the mark is on stage. I know exactly where to find the camera because you look out at the camera, there's 800 people in the crowd. You're trying to find a camera on the edge of a crane swinging from one side of the room to the other. Yeah. And so you know exactly where it's going to be. I'm going to do this, going to do this, going to do this. And then I change to that camera over there. Boom, boom, boom. I'm seeing it all now, Ali. And then I, you know, at that point, I walk around to the right-hand side of the stage. And I turn to my left and I throw to the thing. Okay, great. And then so by the time you get out there... And it's live. You're like, I've done this before. Yeah. And I feel completely familiar. And it's all with it. in control, and yeah, yeah. nothing's going to change. Exactly, because like I've done. And but here's the thing: if things do change, and that's the wonderful part, and why you go live, if things do change, there's so many touch points of where to come back to that you never feel out of your depth. You're like, okay, well, I know the next place that I can get back to everybody's plan because there's. I mean, between me, the camera people, the director, the audio, there's probably 25 people who are rehearsing exactly the same time that I am. They're going, okay, I'm going to turn his fader up. I'm going to turn this light on. I'm going to move this camera there. It's a delicate choreography between so many people. But this is the same with any workplace, all right? It's the same with any any workplace that requires flow and requires everyone to be doing a precise thing at a precise amount of time, right? So... But when you're live, if something changes, if the contestant is crying or the contestant's thrilled and jumps off stage and hugs their parents and then jumps back, you know, you've got so many different touch points along the way that everybody is planned and knows, oh, we can just get back to this point and carry from there. Okay, now we've gone past that. Okay, we'll get back to this point and carry on from there. Um, and so so that that's basically how I've, I've always, always done it. Um, the, the visualization, visualization stuff only started really when I started working at Channel at, at, at Australian Idol um, on those really big live shows, and I've found it to be really helpful. And I've used I use it all the time. I use it all the time. Even you know, even this podcast, you know, in the elevator on the way here, I was like, okay, what am what's this going to look like? Okay, it's probably going to be me sitting opposite her. Okay, all right, cool, all right, yeah. And so when I get here, I'm like, oh, okay, this feels familiar. This is what, yeah, right. where I was working. Does that is that make sense? Does that yeah, answer your question? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. To stop, be present, know what's going to happen. Yeah, and move but also, <laughs> also, you know, just as far as you know, focusing for something so big, it's just and then just remembering a preparation. Remembering yeah. it's okay. I've done everything I've I done need to work. do. I've done the work. You know, and if you're an athlete, you're like, it's cool. I've gone faster in training than I did in that heat. I'm fine. I'm, I've done the work. All I have to do is exactly what I did every time in training, and I'll be fine. 
I think it's fascinating just around that sense of in that space, I've got control. I've yeah. done the work, I've got control, yeah. but outside of that, in the real world, that's where I feel like I don't. Yeah, true. I'm acutely aware as a psychologist in the kind of work that I do that um, people, you walk around and you think they've got their shit together or that what you see on the outside is what's truly going on, yeah. but it's not always the case. And that's a big part of this book and your mm. story is that what we saw on television was not actually what was going on True. for you. And I want to read a little bit. I'm not going to read the whole book, but the part we wanted to, but just even from your preface, um, where you say, I can tell you that while you might have been um, might have been the familiar face that you saw, what was really going on behind those excited eyes and the TV smile was something far darker than would ever have been allowed on prime time. It's <laughs> <laughs> nothing like having your words read back to you, no, is that's it? That's why. For you, what what was going on in those times when you were on Australian Idol? Was is there a moment that you hit rock bottom? Idol, no, Idol. I was still, I was just full of ego and just flying. You know, I was full of so much hubris, and you know, that was no, no rock bottom was until when I got to America. Um, no, what was what was really going on was like the Idol stuff. Um, what was going on there was just someone just completely driven by ego. Uh, outwardly, and then someone who wouldn't leave the house for two or three days at a time because I was so crippled by um, social phobia and social anxiety. Um, it was yeah, it was really scary. Yeah. Uh, I was I would get to a point. I got to a point where I would wear a trucker hat so low um, that uh, thankfully they were fashionable at the time. Uh, but I wore a trucker hat so low that the the, the if you looked at me from the face, you could maybe see my lips, all right? It was so low you wouldn't have been able to see my nose. And I would navigate from place to place by looking at people's feet, all right, so to make sure I wasn't going to walk into someone because I knew, oh, okay, I need to go to this shop or I need to go to that place and I know it's down here and turn left and then turn right and that's where it is. I was that terrified of other people's gaze, all right, out in public. And... I was just so afraid of strangers, so afraid of strangers, and it didn't help at all that I was on the massive national television program because people would run up to me and grab me and shake me. Oh, fuck, Andrew John! People would pull my hair thinking it's a wig and and I was terrified. I was so scared, yeah. so, so scared. Um, but I was obviously, I was making it. I've got to, you know, pay attention to my part. You know, they could have just been, hey, someone excited to see me. This is great. Hey, how are you, man? Good to talk to you. Instead, I was like, oh, fuck, what do you want? Oh! And I would run away. You know, I was terrified. Um, and I would fortify myself for those interactions when I knew I did have to go out by, by you know, wearing a beer blanket before I left the house, basically. Um, so, but when I was on air, um, I never drank before I went on air because I, I just reveled in the sharpness of the live television experience and um, there is really is nothing quite as invigorating as, as that moment I described to you earlier of walking out and doing the thing. You get to do that 15, 16 times in a show. It feels pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> it feels pretty yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. And everyone cheers at the end and you're out at 8.32 p.m. and 15 frames and boom, the Grand Prix's on time. Great, we made it. You know, it's great. It's freaking yeah. awesome, actually. It's, it's really, really satisfying to do. But it's the going around just trying to buy your groceries. And for someone who is afraid that everybody is staring at them when you've got social phobia or social anxiety. <laughs> to actually then, because you're on a television show people. that had 2 million people watch it the night before, to actually have everyone actually staring at you is really, I'm really, not making really, this up anymore. It's really scary. Like it's yeah, true. it's really scary. Yeah. It was really scary. So that that was that was what was going on in the Idol in, in the, in the, idol, idol, in yeah. the idol years. But rock bottom for you was, was in rock the bottom, US. Oh, well, right rock bottom is really referred to as, when, you know, particularly around substances. And um, for me, it was alcohol. Um, drugs were always around, um, but it was more more alcohol that was my my thing, and that happened in um, that happened while I was in America. I was I was away from Australia when there was just it wasn't a particularly the the night that it happened after it wasn't one particular massive blowout. I got really lucky. I got really lucky, Ellie. Some people some people will come out of a blackout with a cop sticking their head through the passenger driver's side window going, what the fuck, you've just killed someone. And mm -hmm. the last thing they remember is being at a bar, all right? That's, that happens. That happens to people, all right? Or they, they come out of a blackout realising they've just done something horribly violent to someone they love and they have no recollection of it, all right? That can be someone's rock bottom. I was really, really, really lucky with mine. Um, it was a, just a 
it was a big night, but to be honest, it wasn't a bigger night than any other night that I'd had. But it was just, it was the one, it was like, it just, this happens every single time. Every single time I drink, no matter how I try to change it. I know, I'll, last time I, everything went wrong when I started doing tequila at the end of the night. I'll start doing tequila at the start of the night. That'll <laughs> fix everything. Yeah, broom, let's go. Um, every single time that I drank, it ended up the same way and I just, I just couldn't do it one more time. I realised that there was, I was incapable. I was incapable. I realised I was incapable of altering the course of what would happen when I started drinking. So the answer was to simply not start drinking. And so the next day I didn't start drinking and that's what I've done ever since. Because <laughs> I know that if it starts, I know exactly how it'll end because I have that much evidence to prove that, no, 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 no matter what you think it'll change this time, it won't. It's going to end exactly the same way every single time and it's just getting worse. And I could see that. I could see that it was progressive and it was getting worse and worse and worse. And I was very, very, very lucky to have seen that when I did because it was quite clear, very evident where it was going and fast. And, um, yeah, I was really lucky that I managed to, you know, you talk about sliding doors and serendipitous moments. I was really lucky to have met someone about about four months before who was the most handsome, talented, gorgeous, muscular, sober man I'd ever met in my life. He was a life of the party. He was an incredibly talented artist. I was like, my God, who is that? He looks like a Tom of Finland cartoon. I, you know, gay listeners will know who Tom of Finland is. Um, basically a, a really stylized kind of, uh, if you remember the the, uh, the the leather man from Village People, so I tried to imagine him as a cartoon, as the most stylized, most perfectly drawn, bulbous in all the right places kind of man with his incredible moustache. And I was like, he looks like he's a, and he's, he's, what do you mean he doesn't drink? He doesn't, what? And I remember him, I'm going, I didn't know sobriety could look like that. I thought sobriety was sad people sitting on folding chairs under church basements, you know, whining about how they ruined their lives and had a DUI. I didn't know that's what it looked like. Shit. And so I'm so lucky that I'd met him only like four months, five months before because I was like, well, I don't want this, but I wouldn't mind a little bit of what he's got because he seems to be there okay. So I gave him a call. I said, hey, man, you know, you know you go to those meetings? Can you take me? <laughs> and away we went, you know, and that was it. And that's how it started, yeah. The importance of reaching out as well, and mm. regardless of whether someone listening is at rock bottom or is just struggling with something, yeah. I think the importance of reaching out is really powerful. And in one of the, one of the um, you do talk about a particular day where it was, I don't know, it was a tough day. I can't remember the circumstances, but it's in your book where you actually say at the end of the day you'd rung 23 people multiple yes. times yes. in order to stay off the grog. Yeah. <laughs> How well, important has been reaching out been Well, it wasn't, just, it wasn't just staying off the grog alley. It was like any kind of escape, all right? The, 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 the trick is and the, the challenge that we all face is to live life on life's terms. How can we live this day without escaping into our phone, into 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 alcohol, into drugs, into sex, into shopping, into gambling, into into whatever it is, into isolation. How can we just live life on life's terms rather than imprisoning ourselves in a freeze response, which that ultimately is. It's you're stopping yourself in your tracks. Every time you do one of those things, you're stopping your progress. You're stopping your life in its tracks. Um, being able to talk to other people, I think it comes from the idea, and essentially the biggest idea was to to really consider where my ideas had got me, all right? What I liked, I was full of ego, so of course I was the smartest person. I had my ideas were the best ideas. Where had my best ideas got me at that point? My best ideas had got me divorced. My best ideas had got me to a point where I was probably going to lose my house. My best ideas had got me to a point where um, this massive TV show and career that I'd built in Australia was now... A, a puff of smoke, gone, completely forgotten about, and I was barely clinging, clinging on to this radio show that I was doing. I was in a financial distress. Um, that was the best thinking, my very best thinking had got me there. Maybe someone else has some better ideas because my best ideas aren't working out. I might ask someone. 
because they might have a better idea how to deal with this than me. And that's where it starts, just to understand that, yes, you've got great ideas, but your thinking might not be the best ideas that you've got. So just ask someone else, what would you do? You know, and maybe someone else has got a better idea. So on that day, I called 23 other people that had better ideas than me because my idea was I'm going to, you know, whatever I'm going to do, it's not going to be good. Um, and I do, whatever it is, I don't want to do it because I know where my best ideas take me. I know where my, 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 I'm super clever when I think I should just go grab another six pack. That's a really smart idea. No, it's not. So, but I don't know what else to do. So I'll call someone who does. And that's basically it. And every time in my life, since I come to that realization, if I'm in a, if I'm facing a problem bigger than me, whether it be, you know, it could be a career problem, could be, uh, you know, a, a problem with, you know, dealing with people in my life. It could be a, a problem, you know, shit, I've got osteoarthritis in both hips. I don't know how to fix it. I call a doctor, all right? You know, it's the same thing. Like, what's the best thing you can do? Do you know everything there is to know about how to fix this? You probably don't. There's going to be someone who does because that's the beautiful thing about humans. There's probably been 100 billion of us that have lived since the dawn of time your problem is not a new problem. Your problem has been solved. You just have to figure out who's done it and figure out what they did and apply the things that they did to your life. And on that particular day, reaching out and calling people was the thing that, you know, saved me. And I've done that a bunch of times in my life. And I think that's so important. Like, and I tell people all the time, I give them my numbers, like before you pick up, just call, pick up your phone, call me, let's talk. Because it only lasts five or 10 minutes, those cravings, those urges. You only need five minutes of chat and you go, ah, oh, that's better. Okay, yeah, you're right. Thanks, man. Thanks. All right, I'll get on with my day. Um, but yeah, on that day, I was really lucky. I was really, really lucky. But I did that again. You know, I did that again when I was, I got really, really sick when the psychosis got really bad. Um, I did that again and I, I spent my, I was in Israel at the time and I spent like maybe, I don't know, 19 hours wall to wall, like just Skyping and calling people as the time zones around the world was people woke up just calling people because I'm like, I, I'm, actually really truly going crazy right here and I need help but I know that my ideas of how to handle that help aren't very good ones but there are people who I know that I can call and I can talk to and get a bit of grounding on and get their ideas and yeah their ideas worked <laughs> so I'll do that again yeah. this is something I'm probably going to do again yeah. a lot of um, and you talk even now with your podcast a lot about how you manage your own mental health yes and you're very open about that and very public about that and it's something that you and I love that sense of curiosity that probably even now you're going I don't know it all so I'm just no, going to keep not. asking what are some of the what are some of your non-negotiables what are some of the things that are absolutely critical now for you to be able to manage um, your own mental health how you feel each day um, I would say to you that the the big four that every single person listening to this has control over you know you do, you just need to make some choices to make it. You have control over what you eat. You have control over how much you sleep. You control how much physical activity you do every day and you control the sense of purpose that you have over the things that you do, all right? Those things no one can take away from you unless you are in some sort of incarceration situation where you know, you're not in control of maybe your food or your, you know, your sleep patterns. Um, prioritizing sleep would be the number one, without a doubt. That is, that would be the number one. I try as hard as I can. Sometimes uh, the worst, best and worst part about having a Fitbit on your wrist is that you go, fuck, four hours and 15 minutes? That is not enough, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so um, the prioritising sleep is absolutely, absolutely key. Does that mean you say no to things in order yeah, to prioritise sleep? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I say no to things and I, 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 I you know, I try, I try to get between seven and eight hours every night. I try really hard. Um, sometimes it creeps down to six, but I try to get between seven and eight hours every night. That is absolutely super important because I know, I know that if I only get four or five hours of sleep a night, I become a horrible person to be around. I think I'm fine, but my stepdaughter and my wife, no, I am an awful person to be around for them. And so I don't want to punish them. Um, what you eat, you control what you eat and put what you put into your body will give you what your body does. All right. If you're eating nothing but fast food, then you know your body will not respond well, and your 
you are you'll you'll start yourself on a path to uh, you know health outcomes that will be to be honest uh, taxing upon you financially <laughs> and taxing upon you um, you know as far as your your lifestyle and your family goes and so y- you can eat things that will make you glow from the inside you know it, it, it's like you've got a, a, a that Teletubby sun in your stomach you know that's you can eat things that will make you feel disgusting it's up to you. You choose what you put in your mouth and, and what you put in your mouth changes how your body feels. Right? But you can do that. That's in your power. You can choose how much physical exercise you, you do. And I cannot emphasize enough to people that, that inside your brain, if you do have a fully functioning brain, and I didn't for a long time, I had to wait for my head to get healthy. I've got to tell people this all the time. Like I was on meds for a long time before I came healthy enough to come off meds. All right, I didn't just stop them. It was my, all my doctors, all of them, not just one, all of my doctors went, yeah, yeah, okay, we can do this. We'll support you and it's going to be tricky, but we can do it. Um, the, the, there's, there's things that get released in your body. If you've got a healthy brain, and like I said, my brain wasn't couldn't do this for a while, but it can now. Um, if you've got a healthy brain, a certain amount of exercise, not you know, it doesn't take much, but you do have to kind of put a bit of oomph into it. You will release endorphins, will release dopamine, will release serotonin, will release norepinephrine into your body. All right, um, endorphins just it's like a it's essentially like an opioid that that is a naturally occurring opioid and it feels incredible, all right? Serotonin and dopamine, we know what those things do. Uh, Serotonin is very, very important in emotional regulation as is dopamine. And norepinephrine, which is the biggie for me, norepinephrine is like, it's the one that gives you the, the, the resilience to deal with adversity. It's the one that gives you the resilience to deal with stress. Or if your norepinephrine's low, you know, the tiniest things will throw you off, right? But if your norepinephrine's up there, you'll be all right. You know, you'll be like, yeah, this sucks right now, but it's going to be okay. You can release those things. You can give yourself superpowers. You can give yourself superpowers. Just do some squats while the kettle boils, all right? You can say, oh, I don't have time. You're going to put a kettle on or put a microwave on today. It's going to go for over a minute, all right? In that minute, what are you going to do? Zombie scroll through your phone and look at someone else's Bali holiday and guess, oh, fuck, I'm fat. I should do uh, <laughs> Why don't I there? Why don't I look like that person? Is, <laughs> look at that bloke. Look at him in his six-pack. Why don't I look like that? Blah. You just zombie scroll through your phone or you can just go, I'm going to do three squats. One, two, three. There we go. I've done three squats today. Brilliant. Bing! Or kettle's boiled. It's that easy. Tomorrow, you do four. The next day, do six. But it's seeing it like a script, isn't it? It's like seeing it like something that I can actually change the chemicals in my brain. You absolutely can. You've got this power. And, And if you say you haven't got time... You just go pick up your iPhone right now. Um, on Android, you go to system settings, you go to apps, and you can see how much time you spend on each app. In iPhone, you go to general, you go to battery, and then you click a little clock, and you can see how much time today you've spent on Facebook, all right? How much of that time? And some people, like, it can be an hour and a half today that you've just gone flick, flick, like, flick, 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 like, oh, that ad looks interesting. Ooh, I might cook that later. Flick, flick, flick. You've wasted an hour and a half of your day when you could be making your body feel amazing, all right? And it's stopping and having the choice and purpose because I think if you've, you know, and it's almost, it is part of that addiction piece as well, isn't it, that if you go, well, I'm going to take that away from you, Mm. no, you can't do that. That's my connection drive. But you need to have a purpose to do something else. Well, this is the other thing, though. There's a final you asked about Mm. non-negotiable. It's the purpose. And Mm. and you can control your purpose. Like, let's just say, let's go back to where the guy we were talking about before, he's, you know, you know, some, some, like whatever job it is that you do, all right? Even when I was a roadie, all right? I used to be, this is why I'm fascinated. We're sitting in this incredible recording studio. And so I worked for a roadie for a long time, which is why we're hearing aids now. Um, and so I lifted road cases for a living and I packed trucks and I, I worked so, I worked hours, like 16, 17 hour days for 40 bucks a day. But I did it because I knew that this is what I want to do. I want to do this. I This is what I, this makes me feel good. This is I, I see myself as someone who works in the entertainment industry and has, does a good job in the entertainment industry, all right? I could have gone up to that job and go, oh, my God, another day of lifting vomit-covered roadcases off the floor. I hate this job. I hate my life. I hate everything. Uh, I'm doing the same physical actions, right? But it's how I approach it, okay? So whatever job it is that you do, 
Like, for example, with, with Bachelor, what do I do on a show like The Bachelor? I do two wonderful things. I help people fall in love every day and I give strangers something to talk about. And that for me is the greatest. I bring, I help people bring, come together. People don't watch our show by themselves. People go around to each other's houses. I, people, friends gather on couches. They all come over and they watch the show. There. I'm helping people come together. All right. So every day when I go to work, I'm like, this is what I'm doing. I'm helping people who don't know each other, maybe at work, connecting over a common thing. And I'm creating those serendipitous moments that you and I talked about earlier. This is what I get to do today. Brilliant. Or I could turn up to and go, oh, another day, show, roses, blah. You so control. You control You that control sense of what it is. Like yeah. the thing is happening. Yeah. The superpower we have as humans is whatever thing is happening, we decide what it means. What that love- is the superpower <laughs> that we have as a human being. We decide whatever thing is happening, we decide what it means. Almost go play the game. Like you do nothing else but play the game to come up with that purpose. Like what yeah. is that? What is yeah, that? Yeah. What's the thing and yeah. who's who's coming so, together? So you could, those, but those, those four interventions... They don't, I, everyone should go to their doctor. I really hope if you're not having a great day, it starts with your GP, all right, and go and find someone who's got great ideas about helping you feel better. But don't think that you have to wait until you can get that appointment or don't think that you're powerless in between those appointments. Every single day you can make those choices. And when you take those moments of control back in your life, it's like what we talked about earlier with uh, doing the live TV stuff. Across the entire length of those big pieces of cameras, you have those little touch points where you can come back to, all right? If you put points of control where you have a locus of control that's internal throughout your day, the world seems a lot less out of control because you have control over parts of your life. I'm going to control what this snack is. I'm going to control what this lunch is. I'm going to control what this afternoon tea is. I'm going to control what this dinner is. Every single time I eat, I'm doing something wonderful for myself. Every single time I don't pick up a cookie, that's self-care right there. That's me being awesome to myself. That's me going, fuck yeah, I'm worth it, all right? And you have these moments all through your day. You have so much. If you completely change the way that you think about how much control you have over life, suddenly, boom, I'm the one, I'm the master. I'm in control of everything. And it makes you feel so much better straight away. You don't even have to open your mouth. You know, you don't have to tell anyone that you're doing it. This all can happen inside your brain if you have a healthy brain, which I said for a long time, I did not. (laughs) (laughs) I needed a doctor to get get there. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Critical. And you're about to step, I mean, August is huge for you. This book is about, is out. Um, you're also on the front cover of Men's Health magazine. Yeah, that's exciting, isn't <laughs> Plenty it? Plenty of stuff. It is exciting. Um, you're going to be doing a lot of media, I have no doubt. Um, so keeping those four yeah. on track, mm-hmm. I imagine, are going to be critical through those busy periods because often that can be easy when mm-hmm. there's not much on your plate, but it's how you actually make sure that they're on yeah, yeah absolutely. happening when, absolutely. when life gets busy. Yeah, yeah, truly. And and when it comes to me, when my, my personal, you know, one of my purposes, and I, I write I write them down. Journaling is a big part of what I do. I write down, you know, uh, 20 things I'm grateful for every single day because it's scientifically proven to help you. It's not just some, again, it's not some woo-woo thing I saw on Instagram. There's actual <laughs> scientific yeah. research that proves if you write 10 or 20 things down on a piece of paper, physically writing it down, that you will feel better. Um, the same with like just dumping fears out. It's like taking out the rubbish. If you dump your fears out on a piece of page paper in the morning, you, you can start your day a lot cleaner. So I, I, I do that every day. But one of my purposes that I, and then I write down what, what my purposes are. Uh, one of them is to, to be the best husband and stepfather I can possibly be, all right? And that is the tippy top, all right? If I'm not doing that, like what's, what's life? What am I here for, all right? So in the course of this busyness, um, Making sure that I stay connected and grounded and and present and and as is of of service as I can be to my wife and stepdaughter that is absolutely paramount. And if I take the time to do that, to be honest, it makes everything else good. It makes everything else better in a strange way, but it does. <laughs> They're your people, right? They They're are. Your people they will are. be there. When yeah, you yeah. Because when everything well. goes away, that's who's left. Yeah. So I've got to I've got to be sure that I am of service to them and I am connecting with them and you know. Um, basking in the emotional protection that we have for each other because that's really important. It might tie into my final question for you, but the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? What does it mean to lead a standout life? I think it it comes definitely to um, the, the... 
recognizing how much control you actually do have over 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 your life and if you don't have that control recognizing that you know there's so much help out there there's so much help and that you're worth not suffering every day um you know you're worth not feeling anxiety every day you're worth not feeling depressed every day you're worth not feeling horrible when you look in the mirror you're worth your life is very short very short you, you know you're worth getting up every day and going yeah this is great let's do this how can i help someone else today let's go and if you're not feeling that there's people who can help you feel that because you're worth it and you know why why live another day you know not feeling great when you could feel great so call your gp call your psychologist go on and do the work do the goddamn work all right like we used to mention the men's health cover i didn't accidentally look like that all right, I didn't just wake up one day. Whoops, a daisy, abs. You know, I took control. God damn, over, you got to do the work. I took control, but the work was joyous and wonderful. It made me feel amazing because my head was buzzing with nothing but goodness. All right, because the resistance training brought out all those chemicals we talked about earlier. So I think to lead a standout life is to take responsibility. To lead, a, let me give you the thing. To lead a standout life is to take responsibility for where you are and take responsibility for the control you have in the situation. All right, you can always. You can ask someone, how do I make this better? I'm not feeling great. What's your ideas here? What can I do to feel better here? And then just do what they say, all right, as long as they're a professional. All right, it's really important. <laughs> Train professionals only, people, please. University degrees, let's not go with certificates. I'm just saying that. Uh, <laughs> I'm all about it. you can trust, yeah. All right. Make sure it makes sense, yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's go. Qualifications are important. Um, and... You know, and understanding that you have that control, and that there is so much control in your life, and that, and and also to be an, be an acceptance of, of of what is. And I I I I didn't want to accept that my brain was like it was. I didn't want to accept that I that that I was going through psychosis. I didn't. And you know, I did the classic mental health thing. If I, you know what, I don't want to have this if I don't take the drugs then I don't have it. Brilliant. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I went even w- w- more crazy. Um, yeah, it's it's taking having that control and realizing you have that control and you have the control to be in acceptance. You have the you have the power to to be in so much control over so many aspects of your day. It's not all encompassing, you know. Whatever it is that's, that's bugging you isn't isn't everything. Isn't everything. There's a lot else going on in the world and that's where the the gratitude thing really comes in handy, okay? Um Yes, you may have you may have anxiety, you may have depression, you may be dealing with something really horrible. One of your kids may be going through something awfully traumatic. But you know what? You open the tap today and clean water that's not going to kill you came out. You know, you slept last night while it rained and you were dry. Those two things are pretty freaking amazing. There's a lot of people on this planet that don't have that. So yes, there's something really awful going on, but you know what? You can handle it. You've got room for it because you've got a warm bed and you've got clean water. You know what else? You've got a fridge full of food. Okay. So, yes, this is a horrible thing that's happening. How can you be there for this person that needs your help? Okay. I've got these three, th- I've got these three things. So that's good. You know, it's, it's understanding that the problem that you're dealing with it isn't the everything, all right? But at the time it feels it. You've just got to do some work. You do have to do some lifting. You've got to do some heavy lifting to, to, to work it. I've given you a 10-minute answer for a three-word question. It's I'm awesome. so sorry. No, no, no. Don't apologise. I love it. Do the work. Be grateful. And know work. that it's, yeah, do the work. part of it. You've got to do the work. You've got to do the work. But there's joy in the work. There's joy. In, in yeah. doing the work is the feeling of control. And it's that feeling of control that gives you that. And that's, you know, honestly, when, you, when you're doing that, and that's why physical exercise is so, so great, even just taking control of that small little aspect of your life. I'm going to do three squats. Look, I just did three squats. That was great. I did three squats yesterday. I might try four today while the kettle boils, while the microwave dings, while rather than picking up my phone and zombie scrolling, I might, I might do a push-up. I'll do one push-up. I'll do half a push-up. I'll hold a plank position if I can't. I'll do it on my knees if I can't. I'll do it against the wall if I can't. But this is what I'll do today. Um, just having that ability to control that part of your life, it just grows and grows. It's like, you know, it's just like one little grain of sand in the bottom of an hourglass every time. And you turn around and you look at it a month later and the thing's full. Like, wow, how'd that happen? Really easy. One little bit at a time. 
Start, one little bit at a time. That's what you, you got to do. Start where you are. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Sorry I rambled. powerful story. Rambling's good. Rambling's <laughs> okay. good. It's quality stuff. <laughs> uh, what the Ormond brother said, Lord, I was born a rambling man. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ali. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.